Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Did You Read with Tim Montgomery. Welcome to Did You Read, the Times Opinion Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery, and this week I'm joined by two Times columnists, Melanie Phillips and Alice Thompson, and also by the executive editor of the Times, making his podcast debut with us, Roger Alton. People say the debacle in Iraq has happened because we went in and got rid of strongman Saddam Hussein. But I think, on the contrary, it's because the United States and the United Kingdom got out of Iraq, thus allowing its Shia Prime Minister Maliki to alienate the Sunnis. Leaving a strongman in place hasn't worked in Syria, and Saddam, if left in place, would probably be running his own jihadi gangs today. This chaos today in Iraq directly threatens the West, as did Saddam himself, but I believe that now the main focus should be on the head of the snake, Iran. The real battle in education is not between Dominic Cummings and David Cameron, whom he tells Rachel Sylvester and me is like a sphinx without a riddle, but between Michael Gove and the blob. The Education Secretary is determined to face down the trendy modernists who want all children making paper mache puppets. He wants to set schools free while promoting academic rigour. And he's right. Uh, this is uh, something uh, that's always sort of concerned me and I thought it'd be quite nice to raise at the time of the World Cup. Uh, and many people, not always women at all actually, are quite happy to say I don't know anything about sport, I don't think about football as if it's a matter of pride. And it'd be odd, even frowned upon in polite society, whatever that is, to say I don't know anything about the arts, the theatre, international affairs, politics and so on. Why is it acceptable to say the same about the world's most popular sport? Uh, it's after all a multi-billion pound industry and effect millions and millions of people. Well, I think you might stir up controversy a bit later with well, that, I doubt Roger. It. <laughs> um, but I think we're probably going to start with a, a controversial topic as well, which is the one that you've nominated for us, Melanie, and that's this subject of Iraq and Iran and Syria, three situations that you see as incredibly closely linked. They are closely linked and I find you know day by day the news becomes more and more terrifying but not perhaps in the way that most people think and indeed the way most people think in Britain I find terrifying because most people I think do not understand that these things are linked and they're linked in this sense that we are facing a threat from within the Islamic world against the West and that these various actors 
Iraq, Iran, Syria are all potentially very threatening to us. And what's happening at the moment is that the chaos in Iraq, we're told, is being caused by this group ISIS. And we're told that it's a rebel group, um, uh, an anti-Syrian rebel group, and that it's backed by Sunni states, particularly Saudi Arabia. And I'm sure all that is true, but these things in the Middle East are never as simple as that. People have many different sponsors. The sponsors may be simultaneously at war with each other, Sunni and Shia, and supporting each other, Sunni and Shia. And what we're finding now is that because there is a kind of mutual interest against the ISIS rebels, because the West cannot afford to have Iraq split into this kind of chaos and perhaps split into warring tribes, Iran cannot afford to allow its sort of sheer uh, sympathetic, uh, sympathetic to Iran president or prime minister rather, Maliki, to be threatened by this group. So we're being told that there is a common interest between the United States and Iran in defeating the ISIS fighters and that the United States is now cozying up to Iran. Now this is beyond terrifying because the ultimate winner in Iraq could be Iran. Indeed, one might have almost conspiratorially minded say that Iraq, that, that, that Iran had actually brought this about. Because what we are going to be finding is that if we support Iran, we're going to be finding that Iran, whose interests are not in stabilizing Iraq, Iran has a history of destabilizing Iraq. Iran, with the help of America and us, potentially, is going to be placed by us in a position where it will permanently destabilize Iraq. It will be in Iraq, Iran will be in Iraq, and at the same time, we will have put ourselves in a position vis-a-vis -vis our negotiations over Iran's nuclear program, where we are basically then in alliance with Iran. Iran proceeds to get the bomb, and let us not forget, since 1979, when the Islamic Revolution came to power in Iran, Iran has been in a self-declared state of war against the West and has carried out numerous atrocities of a terrorist kind against the West through proxy armies. Okay, well, there's so much um, in that, but bring you in at this point, Roger sure. Alton. Do you buy Melanie's view that, in a way, the solution that the West might now be reaching to, to this terrible situation in Iraq, which is potentially forming some sort of oh. quiet or subtle or maybe even more overt alliance with Iran to stop the fall of Baghdad, yeah. might I give Iran the space to develop the nuclear weapon? Um, I, I think, I mean, Mary's got a slightly pessimistic view of all this. I mean, and, and I, I doubt that um, anybody in uh, Capitol Hill particularly wants uh, Iran beavering away in its underground caves building up a nuclear weapon. Without any question, obviously, Iran backs um, Hezbollah, who's about... Terrorists throughout a, the region. Yeah. Throughout the region to drive Israel into the sea, which is clearly, it's a sort of intolerable thing. And it's, it always astounded me how many people in the this country and the West are sort of prepared to accept those kind of remarks without getting uh, absolutely furious uh, furious about it and furious beyond simply a strongly worded letter from William Hague, which is the main <laughs> implement of British diplomacy at the moment. The only other thing that uh, the only thing I would slightly wonder about um, was what Melanie was saying was Tehran and from all I hear about what people say and do in Tehran there is a quite a vibrant young population it's quite western oriented and you have often those extraordinary images of you know large advertising hoardings for big western consumer products and very young and beautiful Iranian people uh, w uh, walking past them and that slowly slowly some form of 
westernization which i mean uh, obviously i think is a good thing would actually start to bring down this peculiar country of uh, clerics and uh, nutcases melanie phillips well, i think roger makes an excellent point um the people of iran are um overwhelmingly lovely people they've actually been historically very pro the west they're not arab they have uh, a different kind of uh, trajectory and the fact is that the Iranian people are themselves under the oppressive yoke of this clerical neo-fascist dictatorship. They themselves are being oppressed under the so-called moderate Prime Minister Rouhani. The number of hangings of dissidents, gay people and others who offend the clerical regime in Tehran, the number of hangings has increased exponentially. People are in a state of siege internally in Iran. Now, the great hope of many people in the West was that, as Roger implies, the people themselves would rise up against the regime. And this hasn't happened. There have been attempts, but they've been pretty well brutally put Ruthlessly down. Crushed, yeah. And there is an argument to say that one of the opportunities the West has missed was to more muscularly help those uh, the, help the people of Iran overthrow its regime. It is still the, the single most be- the single best hope for stopping the Iranian bomb is that somehow the regime will be deposed from within. But unfortunately, in my view, American-led foreign policy, to which this country has unfortunately gone along, has empowered the regime in Iran, which has meant that the West has been weakened in relation to Iranian Iranian regional and nuclear ambitions, but also the Iranian people have been left high and dry. We we used to worry about um, British subservience to American foreign policy when it was hawkish. We seem to not now worry so much about British subservience to American foreign policy. Now it's completely different. But Alice, can I bring you in and sort of go back to perhaps some of the sort of more fundamental issues that have been raging in the press about this debate? Because a lot of people are still, as far as I can tell, fighting the war of 2003, exactly. whether we should have ever gone into Iraq in the first place. And I'm place. rather fascinated that some of the people who were very pro have, have now changed their minds. And I have to admit, I was very pro. And in fact, rather embarrassing, I remember having to write a piece when I was on The Telegraph. Um, and my husband wrote a different piece because we were both on differing <laughs> sides. And my husband actually went on the marches, whereas I was actually very pro the whole thing happening and then when the war ended I went for four weeks into Iraq and weirdly it was a period when I could drive around on my own with another woman actually Mm. in a jeep and neither of us had to be covered up and just looking back it was the most extraordinary three or four weeks when you thought everything could happen and everything was possible Mm. and I think that probably was the only four weeks in the last 12-15 years that, that we've ever had a moment's peace actually in Iraq and and so I think it's very difficult to blame everything now on Tony Blair as if the whole thing is his fault. I'm not, normally, I'm not a great fan of him. But I think it's a very odd argument to be having. I think what we now need to look at is say what is happening exactly, as Melanie says, you know, what is happening and what, what can we do about it? Uh, and do you, think and there are, do you think there are things that we can do, Alice Thompson? Are, are there things that we should be doing militarily now? I feel, having felt very strongly the first time we should go in, I do now feel it was a mistake. But I'm quite happy to say that it was a mistake. I'm like, but e- even Blair, if it but was a mistake, I don't two, think now. Rule no, that I think Colin Powell very... constantly quoted, didn't he, about the pottery barn? Yes. I think wrongly attributed to pottery barn. But if we break it, we own it. We yes. have to fix it. Whether we were right or wrong to go in in 2003, we should have stayed. We yes. are partly responsible now for the fact that the Iraqi army does not seem to be able to defend 
But I think we're now in such a different situation, you wouldn't be able to have troops going in. I don't think in Britain we'd sustain it. But but special forces, drones, airstrikes, would you countenance that sort of... Yes, you see, I would still countenance that sort of thing. But that's partly because I feel the sense of responsibility from having felt the first time around that we should have been there. Um, Roger Alton, you were editor of The Observer at the time of the Iraq war, and I think The Observer, much to the consternation of many on the left at the time, backed the back the war. Do you regret your decision or do you think it's almost irrelevant now what happened I, I, I 10 years my, ago? I lost a whole heap of friends. I've never had many to start with <laughs> after that. But the, no, no, I, I don't. I think it was uh, 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 the, I think it was the right thing to do. I think it was the right thing for the Observer to support it. I thought, that, that not least because the people you were on, on the side of who were opposed to it were, with the exception, obviously, Alice's excellent husband, uh, a lot of extremely unpleasant, you know, fanatical, extreme leftist, socialist worker, not, not entirely very nice people. There are obviously quite a lot of very well-meaning people as well. The invasion, I think, was the right... There are three reasons put forward by Blair, which were essentially WMD, as, as it happens, not the case that it could have been. I, I don't think that was so comical. Is, uh, well, I think for me, Saddam Hussein was the weapon of mass destruction uh, 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 rather uh, uh, than... Um, and extraordinarily, even, uh, this was a country where the terrible, terrible, terrible things were happening and there was a moral argument about yeah. about doing that anyway. And then I think it was a perfectly legitimate argument to say that America is our oldest ally and uh, alliances must count for something in the world. And the consequences of the movement away from that led to the, uh, the rejection of... Uh, the faintest possibility of saying David Cameron's proposal to say that if everything gets very badly then we might possibly have a committee to look at the possibility of at some point thinking about having an intervention in Syria where there have been chemical weapons wiping out a lot of uh, a whole heap of children we put them on the front page of this paper but no that was defeated by his own rebels combination of his own rebels and the appalling Ed Miliband mm-hmm. which then allowed Obama who's I'm normally a great fan of but to, to say well Mr. Cameron I'm Mr. Cameron stepping back so we better step back as a result of which uh, Russia has been allowed to step in and you've got this mayhem in, 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 in the Middle East. But I do think it was the right thing to do and I think this refighting of the 2003 is preposterous and we have to think about, uh, as you say, uh, the owning, owning the, the pottery barn breaks down, we've got to own it. Uh, you, you, Obama sending in 250 forces, uh, forces uh, uh, I think it was announced late last night. We should be doing the same except our army has been so totally weakened by uh, defence cuts. In terms of big events of the of the last 10, 15 years, which sort of frame the West response to this. That vote that Roger referred to a year ago or so when the British Parliament rejected military intervention in, in Syria. Syria, when Obama's red line on the use of chemical weapons had been crossed, that seems to me to be, in Britain's post-war history, one of the big moments in our foreign policy. That's the moment when we really confirmed that the view of intervening in other nations had, had, had changed in a fundamental way. I think it did register that, and I think it was such a hallmark. But unlike many people on my side of the argument, which is considered to be a more hawkish position, I can't think why, but it is considered a more hawkish position, um, I was never in favour of going into Syria, and I'm still not retrospectively in favour because we have to know, in order to intervene, you've got to know whose side you're on. Mm. And it's very, very difficult 
to know whose side you're on. And if we had gone in, our weapons and uh, support could easily have been used by people who are uh, basically fighting the West as well as the Assad regime. No question so that the Assad regime... those weapons now in absolutely. the march on No question the Assad regime is evil, but it's the head of the snake. Assad is propped up by Iran. Iran is the puppet master in the region. Iran is the puppet master of overt terrorism against the West, I mean terrorism directly against the West, and through its proxies, and Syria is the proxy regime. To deal with Syria, to deal with Assad, we should have gone for Iran. We should still go for Iran. We should basically be seeing Iran as the enemy. That regime has to go. Okay, well, that's a good way to end where you began. And um, for all those of people listening who are Times subscribers, can I recommend you go to the Times.co uk slash comment central and we'll put some of the articles background articles have been written by times journalists on these affairs there and i would also particularly post a, a speech by the canadian foreign secretary uh, john baird who has just marked one year of rouhani uh, being in power in iran and looking at actually the way lots of human rights issues have gone backwards in that country and that this reformer hasn't delivered what that he said that um, he would and also in that list of articles we will post some fascinating articles that have been written by Alice Thompson and Rachel Sylvester on the education sector. They've been doing a fascinating inquiry into the war, really, between Michael Gove and large parts of the <laughs> educational establishment, which he refers to as the blob, Alice. Tell us a bit more about what you have learned from your wide-ranging um, conversations with educationalists and ministers. I think the first thing we learned that it really is a war, and they talk in military language, so they're moving to Admiralty House. Um, whenever you talk to Michael Gove and discuss it, it's all in military terms. And he said, actually, he's beginning to quite enjoy now dodging the bullets, and he gets that survivor sense of, you know, actually, I can keep going, I'm forging forward, and it's all done in sort of D-Day analogies. And so to us, we hadn't realised quite how vociferous the battle had become, and... I mean, it's been building up. Melanie, I was, we were discussing, I wrote one of the first books on Almost Tab Prizes mm. about this so-called blob <laughs> that it's become, about this very trendy... One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
a modernist teaching whereby all children you know, need to do much more sort of touchy-feely, hands-on learning. And I have four children and I've seen my children go through it and we, you, know, you do endless projects and, and make things and craft things and very little of the sort of times tables or what was, you know, has been come to see as sort of drudgery that you don't really need. And Michael Gove has really swung the pendulum back the other way and he said, actually, you know, we're not going to have any of this. And he's caused the wrath not just of the educational establishment, but his own department, which, you know, turned against him, and also all the lovies who've turned against him, which is another piece that we've done where, you know, they've all lined up to say, you are destroying English language, you are destroying our education. But he's <coughs> determined that he's going to keep going. And I, I thought there were some fascinating facts in the Monday's uh, instalment of your series, not least which included that levels of literacy and numeracy amongst this generation are equal to those in their 60s and 70s, in the sense that we've spent, what, four or five times as much money per head as we did when that generation was educated, but to no discernible improvement in standards. And that seems to be what Michael Gove is wanting to change. And you, you quoted Ken Clark in the series saying that, in fact, if you're not registering opposition or producing opposition from the teaching establishment, you're not doing a good job. Well, what's in, shocking in about the forming. statistics is we are almost the only country that's gone backwards. So almost every other country in the world, you know, the 60, 70-year-olds are not as literate as the 18, 19-year-olds. And we've got this backward-looking education system that's sort of been falling off the cliff, basically. And it, it, it's taken so long to try and change it round. And that's why I think Michael Gove sounds so belligerent, because it is almost impossible to change this round. And What's slowly the education it is happening. Of, so I'm just, I the education of people who are 16, 17 now, such as myself, wasn't it actually quite good? No. Yes, well, I think that's what he but, wants to return very much. But why is it a bad thing if it's if eighteen-year-olds have the same levels of literacy? Or, well, I don't. I'm probably being too thick. Oh, but you think it would be quite good if they did? No, because people are sixteen. Uh, well, because every other country has progressed. So every, we've still got five million children who are illiterate, uh -huh. which is what we had before. So yeah, most be, people got a good education, yeah. but there was still the sense, even after the Second World War, that you had some people who weren't. Mm. And every other country has tried to get those bottom. 10-15% of the country up mm. and get them numerous and literate and we still have huge swathes of children who are leaving GCSEs having not gained a single you know, A to C star Not actually some of them haven't got any qualifications at all and that just leaves them completely redundant in the marketplace. Melanie Phillips you, 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 as Alice said you wrote a book mm. about this problem over what 10 15 years it ago, it was in, in mid in mid 80s, 80, 86, I think. Got it was. Longer than no, nearly 20 years ago. Yeah. Is Michael Gove doing what you hoped an education secretary would do? Um, absolutely, although he's not gone far enough, and I'm sure left to his own devices, he would go further. Um, he's been constrained by all kinds of uh, uh, attitudes within his own government, which reflect some of those attitudes. For example, you know, the sacred shibboleth of equality, equality of outcome. It's so ingrained. People don't even realise the extent to which their attitudes are shaped, our attitudes are collectively shaped by this assumption uh, that everybody best, basically must be treated exactly the same. Heaven forbid a child should have a problem, that any child should feel, you know, that, that they fail at a problem because their self-esteem will be, will be smashed. All this has actually destroyed children's self-esteem. Uh, they've been left to struggle in a world without maps, to find their own way through the world in a world without maps. It's really important to understand, and this is what I found when I wrote my book, All My Surprises. Thank you, Alice, for the plug. Um, Available in all good Unfortunately not, it's out of print, but there you go. I blame the author for not updating it. But anyway, when that book came out, I was, you know, I mean, without exception, the entire education world said, um, you are crazy, this is untrue, this is ridiculous. And this is what Michael is up against. All these years later, Michael Gove, the 
whole education establishment, I don't mean individual teachers, there are many individual teachers who know perfectly well how to teach and what education actually is and are doing a tremendous job. But in, in, in its establishment form, um, the education establishment uh, will not have this. It is completely enmeshed in this idea of radical egalitarianism of outcome and the idea that a culture cannot legitimately transmit its values to the next generation, that what the child brings to the educational experience, what the child brings him or herself to the classroom, is not only equal to but superior to anything the adult world imposes, in quotes, upon that child. And that's what Michael's up against. And it's very difficult to reform a culture from within. Mm -hmm. And so of necessity, he's trying to do it from without, which means putting himself outside the citadel and fighting it. Yeah. Can I make, ask a couple of questions? Roger Alton, yeah. Firstly, I mean, it's quite, I totally agree with everything Manny said. I mean, I suspect a lot of it is down to the power of the teaching unions. I mean, it's a staggeringly unionized profession and the industry that we all work one, in. One of, one of the quotes that um, Alice and Rachel put in is Dom Cummings, the advisor to Michael Gove, <laughs> saying the only thing that the unions ever really talked about wasn't standards or was about their pay, their yeah. conditions and their, their and, hours. And then this industry that we're in, the newspaper publishing industry, for example, was completely trashed by unions up until the point at which Rupert Murdoch decided to take them on and since then it's been safe so personally I think there's a lot of it's down to the unions but on two other there's a very but I think it's, all, it's sort of sort of always been thus there's a quite interesting recent book by a woman called Mikey Cuddy called A Conversation About Happiness and it's about her the memoir based on her time at Summerhill which was the great liberal mm. kind of free teaching place and it emerges as a it's a sort of a place for virtual child abuse actually and a shocking Neglect, not abuse, sorry. Uh, a, a, a dreadful, dreadful experience. Very interesting little book. But then the other thing, I just wonder slightly in the, the interesting panel in the Times coverage of this, which has been great, yesterday there was stuff about sort of bad teaching and it went in on that story that emerged recently about Mr. Men being used for teaching the Second World War, which you can see could be terrible, but I mean, if it's five-year-olds, it might actually be quite useful. And one of them was uh, put forward as uh, to kids to devise a wanted poster, to design a wanted poster for Captain Jack Sparrow of the Pirates in the Caribbean film. But I thought that was actually really quite a good idea because it would make you take an interest in crime and punishment in the 18th century. You'd have to... Uh, think about design, both in the 18th century and how you'd replicate that now. And it was sort of something I'd really like to do. I mean, not necessarily okay. if I was well, what do you think applying for university um, entrance. I think the, the problem is it's fine to do them occasionally, but when they've looked at the research in the yeah. department, and actually the ministers have gone through this in great detail, what they've found is that there's no point in doing any homework if it doesn't back up what you've done in the class. And a lot of these projects are just thrown out by teachers, done by parents in a great extent. So it would be you doing the Jack yeah. Sparrow poster. And the child may be doing a bit of colouring, but getting bored halfway through yeah, and floating yeah. off. <laughs> and actually, what they need to do, the only point in homework is to go over what you've done in the class that day, add to it, see what you understand, what you don't understand, yeah. rather than spending a lot of time making... We had to make a, a pyramid out of sugar lumps, which took a huge amount when of sugar lumps. When you were at school... No, this is what I did with my child you know, a few weeks ago. And, and it, it takes hours. It takes a lot of sugar lumps. Very and it's messy. meant to be teaching them how a pyramid <laughs> is made. Yeah, but quite honestly, maybe they should be learning the dimensions of the pyramid and a bit more about sort of Egypt and... Before, before, before we move on, let me ask you one question, um, Alice. And we accept, I think, we agree that Michael Goh has needed to be quite belligerent and combative to get through these reforms and not at least he's had to 
fight the Liberal Democrats and people in Whitehall as well as the teacher unions. But is there a danger that he's becoming too belligerent, full stop? You know, we've seen him fall out with the head of Ofsted. We've seen him fall out with Theresa May. He's made disparaging remarks about the culture in number 10 Downing Street. Has something slightly gone wrong with Michael Gove's mentality that because he's got into a fighting mode against the special interests in the teaching profession, he sort of got into a slightly belligerent mode full stop and that is undermining him with the Prime Minister, with the Chancellor and potentially undermining him full stop. I think if I was one of his special advisors, which obviously I'm not, but I think that's the problem with Dom, is that Dom Cummings, in many ways, his former special advisor in many ways, was an extraordinary figure because he did push things through. But he wasn't giving him that sane advice of, actually, you do need to take people with you on this. Mm. And my family are all teachers. And you you mentioned Michael Gove, and everyone recoils. And actually, at the school gate, you mentioned Michael Gove, and people recoil. And in fact, what he's trying to do is help people's children. And he is, in the end, helping teachers. So if only he could have brought everyone with him, it would have been much, much better. But if you talk to him about it, he will always say, actually, it it became such a battle that I couldn't really, you know, stop and and carry on and sort of be polite. Do do you think we need someone at education now like Jeremy Hunt has been after Andrew Lansley? You have the reformer, but then you have someone who will protect the the legacy, will stop. My only fear is that it could slide backwards. I think education is one of those areas that is so Mm. ingrained, the battle between the the forces, that actually I think part of the problem they had was that everyone was just hoping Michael Gove would go. So they thought if they kept their heads down, they didn't have to change too much. And then he would disappear and then they could just go back to their old ways. So I think... So we're still in the middle of the war, and now is not I the think time maybe I would keep Michael Gove on, change but the general. Okay. Yes. Well, look, it's, an, it's an organisational pattern where you sort of strive to change immediately, and then the weight of sort of organisational practice comes on, and you start to slow down and pull back. And what's great about Gove is that he hasn't done that; he's kept going, mm-hmm. and that would be the problem. I mean, the great advantage of people like Jeremy Hunt, Alistair Darling, and the Labour governments, you immediately could take a department out of the headlines and mm-hmm. it became a black hole of no news. And obviously, governments and prime ministers like that. Yeah. You could do that with education. It'd be a great tragedy if that does happen. Okay. Well, Roger, the other great tragedy, of course, is that not enough people know about football. So I don't know we, whether we've prepared a pop quiz for Melanie and Alice to check whether <laughs> no, they know no, who's they playing a striker for uh, Portugal and defender for uh, um, Germany. But you think that they should know <laughs> no, I think, the squads of the um, no, World Cup sides? No, I don't think they should know, <laughs> but they should be... Uh, the, the, not uh, Melanie and Alice, than whom you won't find two more sort of broadly well-informed but my only point was that it's a perfectly legitimate to sort of say things. It's only raising this at the time of the World Cup. It doesn't have to be football. Yeah. But people can say, I don't take great pride in. We have a very excellent, admirable leader, admirable leader writer on this newspaper who takes great pride in saying, I don't know anything about sport. And, and Oliver uh, Camp. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and there are quite a few... I mean, a lot of people who are like that. And obviously, the, in, the, the ability of the British male to go on interminably about <laughs> things that mean nothing. For example, I spent most of yesterday on the radio listening to the, the Wayne Rooney debates if there's an international you know, crisis. And you say, oh, please, stop it. But no, people won't stop it. Mm-hmm. But it's just simply you, have to, you ought to know something. So I don't... Or know it's around. Know mm. that there is uh, uh, this is happening. Mm. There is a bit of rugby that Johnny Wilkinson did. Just have a little broad knowledge and not take pride in saying I know absolutely uh, nothing about this and I'm going to shut myself away because it is quite interesting. It's quite moving. It's quite dramatic and it affects 
billions of people in the So, Melanie Phillips, have you heard that this Football World Cup is happening? <laughs> <laughs> um, I have heard it's happening. I wouldn't say that I know very much more than that. Have you watched any um, of the games? Certainly not. <laughs> um, I, I, do, you, do you think Roger has a point? Should people know a little bit about football in the way they're expected to sport, know about theatre sport, and sport? In the same way they're expected well, to know, you know about theatre and science? In and an ideal world, you know, we'd all know something about everything, but it's not really possible. And I agree, people who, who you know, for whom a whole area of national life is a completely foreign country to them. I mean, there is something a little bit sort of exclusive in the bad sense about that. Um, but, you know, I mean, if, if you don't play sport and if you're actually kind of sportistly challenged so that, you know, if you see a ball, you run in the opposite direction from it, <laughs> as I do, then it's actually quite hard to maintain an interest. And I have to say, Roger, you may not remember this. There's no reason why you should even have known it at the time. But when you and I were colleagues at The Guardian, such was the despair of our mutual colleagues about the fact that I knew zero about sport and had less interest. I was virtually frog-marched by one of our colleagues to a test match at Lord's <laughs> in order to teach me about cricket. Did you enjoy it? I hated it. So it completely failed. And I also, I sat there thinking, my goodness, all these men in suits with briefcases are sitting here. Why aren't they at work? I'm sure sure that was a very unsporting thing to do. It seems like a great day. Waste of of a seat at Lord's, as far as I you are. I'm kind of Roger's worst nightmare. No, no, never, Manny, without (laughs) that absolute huge uh, hero of mine. Uh, Not not tennis afternoon at Queen's? Ah, tennis. Now you're talking. Now, I have played tennis in my my time. I also played netball. So you were were, were spinning a line. I'm sure, Roger, you're entirely familiar. (laughs) I don't consider tennis to be sport. (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, it's probably it's the more most like and, and ballet, Andy ballet with a ball. A the most demanding physical <laughs> sport there is at the moment, and to well, see great true. tennis finals, as I'm sure you've well, watched, that's true. But that's is true. Watching something they make of an I think the point war. about football I, I, just, is that I find it off-putting because sure, it's like sure, tribal. You don't have to like it's like war. Oh, sorry, you, you don't even like the men's legs. Um. Oh, the men's legs. <laughs> Alice, I think Roger's already retreating a bit, I think, from his pitch. At the beginning, we need to know about that football. Now, apparently, it's just sport. But is there anything in what he says that ignorance of sport is somehow socially acceptable in well, a I way that ignorance of arts... When yeah. we go into leader conference, we talk a lot about football. We never talk about fashion. Less so than before. And I've never <laughs> talked about netball, and I know everything about netball, so I could netball easily do a isn't on netball, co- netball, but I've Netball isn't quite as on. big a sport as football well it's not as corrupt I have to say and also we never talk about the women's football and actually we don't know what's happening with the women's world cup we only know about the men don't yeah. we so we have no discussion about that it's a very male orientated sport mm. and that's the problem so I'm very happy to talk about riding I'm yeah. very happy to talk about netball <laughs> I'm very happy even actually cricket you can have yeah. some women in and it's become more of a female mm. sport but football really is so male dominated and I have three sons and you know it is astonishing mm. how much time they can waste either buying match tax or mm. talking about sure. who's going where what's and so I do just switch off and then I think I should be taking them shopping instead of I think that's absolutely <laughs> can I make a tiny fa- fa- final word to you Roger just a tiny fashion point there's a very interesting speech in um, and I agree with you entirely I think people should know about fashion we should discuss yes fashion. well you are the exception um, you are a very fashionable any, man if only, really only people could see how well Roger is dressed Roger is today. very well dressed uh, today without being anyway burning from the padding to the end but I would there was a speech Meryl Streep is the 
the Anna, uh, Anna Winter Anna figure Winter, yes. in the Dolores Parallel, and, and she's doing Anne Hathaway, her sort of slightly uh, sort of surly <laughs> boho assistant, saying, "What colour is that? What colour is that? Some uh, sweater? Uh, she's wearing a blue sweater, and she doesn't know the precise colour." So Meryl Streep launches into a wonderful speech, saying the, no- the number of colours involved in producing that sweater, the number of people involved in the designers, the producers, the distribution, the journalism, mm-hmm. and one tiny little sweater, and this is this just a tiny representative of the giant, giant mm. industry, and you should know about these things, you and your boho friends. And well, I thought it was a mark, and I agree mm. with that. Well, I think we can find it on YouTube and put it on, it's, the, if it's on, the, it's on the blog. It's a fantastic speech. But we must stop um, there, but those of you who have an appetite for football-related conversation, that is the Game Podcast, which is broadcasting from Brazil every Monday, so you can get more of your football fix via that but that's the end of this opinion um, podcast Roger thank you for coming along making your debut Alice and Melanie as always and also to Dave Maguire my producer and most of all thank you to you for listening and we will be back next week even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.